Am I there? There we are. All right. Uh, so we continue our uh, series today on the heart of Christianity, and we're going a little bit out of order if you're playing at home. Uh, so today we're jumping ahead to chapter 9, which has to do with sin and salvation. We'll talk about that on Tuesday, and then next week we're talking about thin places, which uh, dovetails perfectly with what churches the world over are going to be celebrating next week, which is uh, Pentecost Sunday. Uh, one quick way to say what that was all about was uh, people's understanding of the Spirit of God as being a part of our lives, leading and directing our lives, shifted from basically on very few select individuals to like everybody uh, in an instant. And that radically changed how we thought about ourselves as people and our relationship with God and the world and what, what was capable uh, in us and through us in cooperation with God. It's really remarkable. So that's next Sunday. So Thin Places has to do with how do we cultivate these experiences with God uh, and have a deeper personal spiritual kind of connection with God. That's next week. It should be great. And then the following week after that, we're talking about the kingdom of God and dealing with justice issues and uh, should be should be really cool. Before we get into uh, today's stuff, though, just a quick shout-out because this is so cool. Uh, but Barbara Orsini, there she is. Wave your hand, Barbara. This is so cool. So she had a, uh, a career in tech. She was doing coding before people knew what coding was and uh, can write a book on Excel. And she had as a life goal to finish a degree. So she had this career without uh, formal education, but she climbed the ladder and did amazing things. And so one of her life's goals was to complete a degree. So she is graduating from Napa College with an AA in art uh, this week. So congratulations to Barbara. That's so cool. Way to go. Love it. All right. So what we're looking at today has to do with uh, sin and salvation, maybe. There we go. Hopefully that'll work. And I have a question, and that is, as a kid, what did you think it meant to be saved? What was the whole thing about? And I know the way it was framed for me primarily, now I grew up in the Baptist tradition, but a mainline Baptist tradition, so we were American Baptists, and so it wasn't, the churches I uh, grew up in weren't particularly hellfire, brimstone, anything like that. But the idea of being saved really boiled down to making sure that your sins were forgiven. So at some point, parents and other people in the church really wanted you to embrace and accept Jesus. Sometimes we'd use language into our heart as our personal Lord and Savior uh, so that we would welcome the forgiveness of God uh, somehow through that relationship that something that happened on the cross for Jesus uh, had something to do with my sin in some way and so we would look to that as sort of the reconciling thing of all time and so I would know in following Jesus and embracing that, uh, that my sins are forgiven so that God would welcome me one day when I die so I could have uh, life after death. That was kind of how the whole storyline was framed. And it basically boiled down to sin management. What do we do with sin and how do we get rid of it? Sin and salvation uh, were tied directly together. And sometimes because that's the dominant, and by the way, any of you kind of have that experience growing up? Was that... All right, yeah, probably a lot of you had it. Uh, even in the Catholic tradition, there's still a piece of that uh, that is very much alive. Make sure you get your confession in. 
so that if you die tonight or whatever, you're going to be okay. Uh, that's kind of an extreme way to think. But I know a lot of you are in mafia families, and so you would go to church on Sunday and make sure you were cool so you could go back to your mafia business Monday through Saturday and then do it all over again so that you're, you're cool with God. So <laughs> we understand that works. That's sort of how the thing works. And, um, and so I lived with that and believed that, and for the first uh, four, five, six, seven years of being a pastor, um, I really dialed into that. And I was in the neck of the woods in northern Illinois that really resonated with that. I was deeply informed by a church in the Chicago area called uh, Willow Creek Community Church, which was an evangelical church uh, for sure, did things differently in an attractional way. So I was schooled on that, enamored by that. I loved the music that was associated with all that and didn't realize that I was more and more uh, becoming um, more along those evangelical types of lines where primarily the message that I would speak would be sin management and what to do with your sin and please accept Jesus or else. And I'd hate to think what would happen to you. That was kind of the, the, whole, the whole shtick. But after a while, and most of you know my story, um, that didn't sit well with me. And I just felt like that couldn't possibly be the whole thing. And I'd already started work on my doctoral work, and frankly, I was, I was fried, and I, I couldn't do it anymore. If that's, what, if that's what the whole thing that God was trying to do was about, was sin management, it just felt really shallow to me. And so um, I changed the focus of my thesis and went after soteriology, which is the study of salvation. <laughs> what does it mean to be saved? And much to my delight, I found out that it was much bigger than I had imagined. And much more beautiful, much more expansive, much more inclusive, much, much, much more compelling. And so that's what we're talking about today. And so I want to jump in, I'm going to fire hose with you a little bit uh, and show you some things and think about some things. And then um, I have a final 10% that I want to give you uh, toward the end. And um, it, it could be difficult, but I think, I think you're, you're pretty cool people, so I think you'll be able to be all right. So um, anyway, uh, when we think about uh, what salvation is, we need to ask the question, well, what does save mean? Uh, what, what did it mean for the original audience? What did it mean for uh, in the Hebrew language and in the Greek language? Because that word uh, is all over the place. Uh, soteriology, the study of salvation, soter, S-O-T-E-R, is that Greek word uh, for save. And ultimately, uh, in its essence, it means to heal, uh, which in a very broad sense uh, means to heal, to make whole, uh, to promote deep peace and well-being in our person. Uh, but it's bigger than that. Uh, there's a Hebrew word, uh, shalom, that represents this. Uh, that's what shalom means. Anytime you see that, it's more than just peace. It's not peace meaning the absence of conflict. It's peace, meaning this deep healing well-being, a harmony within ourselves and with everyone in creation and in creation itself. That's what shalom is all about. In the New Testament, uh, with Jesus' stuff, we see words like eternal life. Uh, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe with him shall not perish but have everlasting life or have eternal life. Well, that eternal life is not talking about heaven, even though that's what has been communicated for so long so strongly. Jesus in that instance was not talking about heaven. He was talking about life here and now as a real experience of bringing in more of the presence of God into our lives and allowing that shalom thing to de develop deeper and deeper into our existence 
as individuals, as community, families, systems, as a nation, as a globe, and creation itself. The whole thing. I mean, that's a big vision, right? And that's incredible. Uh, Jesus used words like abundant life to describe what this was about, which is different than a Western understanding of abundant life, which just means have a bigger portfolio, drive a nicer car, live in a better zip code, uh, me, myself, and I, let's build my own personal kingdom and call it good. That's not the abundant life that Jesus was talking about at all. Now, that may include that for you if that's how everything works out, but for the most part, what Jesus was saying, especially to his disciples and his audience, who most of them were absolutely poor, dirt poor, Jesus himself, extreme poverty. That's the picture of Jesus, and he's saying to people like him, you can have an abundant life. Without all that stuff, it is possible. And that's really incredible, if you think about it, that the quality of your life does not depend on your bank account, your house, your cars, your retirement, even your health. And Jesus is saying there's something bigger than that, deeper than that. And to his Jewish audience, he was saying it had everything to do with shalom. And that the more we, we pursue this shalom, the more we experience this word salvation. And incidentally, much more than some kind of transactional thing where we say yes to Jesus so we know we get to heaven and we hear that logic all through our life and we sure hope it works because it sounds kind of fishy, but we're going to believe it. And we may even question it all the way till our last breath. Is that going to hold up? But if we're living in shalom, we don't even have to ask the question because the deeper we go with shalom, the deeper we are grounded in what is the isness of God that we talked about a couple weeks ago. And when we are grounded in the presence of God, which permeates absolutely everything, and we're already in it, our confidence skyrockets on what might be next. And it has nothing to do with a transaction and everything to do with a relationship with the divine that is already here, already loving us, already welcoming us forward. It's remarkably compelling. Uh, so uh, we need to talk about, though, uh, what were some of the other facets of salvation? Uh, so uh, we've already talked about um, as Jesus or God as the sin forgiver and heaven provider. That's the one that we are very, very familiar with. But, you know, if you think about that, just think about it in the whole storyline. The sin forgiveness thing, if that was really all that God was about, that's not particularly helpful for a lot of situations that the people of God found themselves in. And Borg points this out really well. So along uh, about Exodus, uh, things turn real south. Uh, the people of Israel uh, migrated to Egypt, so the story goes, uh, because there was famine in the land, and so they built their life there, and they grew, and they populated. And then uh, things went bad. Uh, there was another famine in the land, and it started to cause problems. And uh, and there was a new Pharaoh who w wanted to turn the screws uh, on, the, on the Israelites and all this stuff. And it was a mess. They found themselves in slavery, and they had to figure out how to get out of it. And so they cried to God for help. Well, if the only thing that God said to them at that point when they're crying out under the tyranny of Egypt was, I forgive you. <laughs> the, the Israelites in Egypt would be like, great, and? Any, anything else, God, up there? Uh, we, and by the way, the Israelites at that time did not believe in an afterlife. And so for them, the idea of 
being welcomed by God after death is, they haven't even thought about that yet, right? So <laughs> to just hear that your sins are forgiven, that doesn't make any sense. But what really made sense to the Israelite community is this other idea uh, that is embedded in salvation, which is that God became a liberator of enslavement. And so you know the story, you saw the movie, and throughout the whole Ten Commandments thing and all that, they, God does all these kinds of cool stunts, and lo and behold, the people are free and on their way uh, to the promised land. It's a fascinating story, but this theme ran deep with the people of Israel. They never forgot it, and they still practice Passover today, which was born out of their enslavement, this final act of God redeeming his people and moving them forward to a new land. That was what salvation meant for these people. Well, when they got uh, back to the promised land and were kicking around a while, uh, they didn't always get it right, and sometimes their not getting it right caused major problems uh, for the, the people of Israel. Uh, the prophets of old, uh, they would warn them and say, look, you've got to get your stuff together uh, because if you don't, that's going to catch up with you and you're going to be taken over by uh, foreign countries because that's, that's just what's going to happen if you neglect everything that God is trying to do. But they didn't listen. And they made a lot of the same mistakes, by the way, uh, that we make in our day and age. Like they neglected fostering the faith. They neglected taking care of the practices, the cultic practices of faith. They blew it off. They let the temple and everything it represented kind of fall into shambles. They were chastised by that, by the way, uh, by some of the prophets who always spoke in and spoke truth to the situation. And you know what they said? The prophets, one of them said, you know what, you guys are living in luxury, but the place you, you honor God is a dump. You need to turn this thing around or else it's going to come back to you. And what was being articulated was, you know, don't make the temple pretty for the temple's sake. But how you treat the temple might suggest something about how you actually feel about God and what your devotion to God actually looks like. And if your devotion and your relationship with God starts to sink, that's going to domino into all kinds of problems, and it did. Over time, foreign oppressors came in and had their way with Israel, eventually Babylon taking them out. Now the people were in exile. But over time, uh, things shifted, and Israelites were allowed to come back into their homeland, build the wall again around Jerusalem, and eventually build the temple so that they could carry on with their religious practices. And so at that point, uh, the people of Israel began to understand, and Borg again points this out well, uh, that they, they began to understand salvation as God guiding them back home in myriad ways. It's powerful, powerful stuff. And good. And this is part of our history. And if we just stopped right there and, and left it, I think we can resonate with this. Because certainly there have been times in my life where I haven't felt great about decisions I've made or behaviors I've done or even attitudes that I've held. It is a disturbance of shalom. That's one way to define sin, is how are we getting in the way of the shalom that God is wanting for us, for our communities, for our world. And when we start to mess with that or, or, or screw it up, that would be called sin. And certainly there are times in my life where I, where I disturbed shalom, where I restricted it from myself, messed it up for others, probably didn't help creation either at times in my life. 
And so at that point, you're like, how do I, how do I get rid of this yick that I have? And so it's great to know that the God that we are here trying to understand and get our arms around and welcome the arms around us is a God that forgives and is full of grace. And that the storyline that comes in Jesus, at least in part centuries later, communicated great acts of grace. I can, I can stand and sing the good things about the grace of God because of that. And I know that there are times when I have felt enslaved in my life. Not literally, uh, but enslaved. And I know uh, some of you um, have felt enslaved by different things in your life. For some of you, it's, uh, it could have been alcohol or drugs or any number of other things we might be addicted to. And I hope this is okay, but since she put it on Facebook, then I'm going to just say okay. But I want to celebrate Jenny Olson, who celebrated 13 years of sobriety. That's awesome. Well done. And she would be the first to tell you, as she shared with me, um, that uh, she was able to get through it, and she communicated this in her post, that she was able to get through it because she was supported, supported by other people and her higher power. Well, that's awesome that God is one that works toward uh, freeing us from whatever enslaves us, whatever enslaves us. And there's help, and it's good to know that God is on the side of that. And there have been times in my life where I've looked in the mirror and have not recognized myself. That I just felt like a foreigner, like an alien walking around because whatever I was seeing in the mirror just did not reflect who I believed was my truest self. And thank God that God is one who helps bring us back home so that we can be whole and well and live as the person that we've been created to be, this incredible, weird, mysterious mix of the divine breath that we all share and have and the weird gene code that I got from my parents and all that all together in this strange co-creation experience of my life and your life. God brings us home to that. What does it mean for you to be you? And God's all over it. But a question we need to ask is, what was Jesus about? And so I want to spend some time uh, just thinking about that. And this means I have lots of bullets for you. Okay, so just in a very broad way, I um, want to have you think about, well, what was the shalom that Jesus was after? And so I want to remind you, I'm not going to read the whole story or even really teach about it because I've done that plenty. Uh, but right after this experience, this was the camping trip after Jesus' baptism where he had to sort everything out. And after 40 days on his camping trip, um, he sorted things out about what he wanted to do, what he sensed he was supposed to be, and it had everything to do with shalom. And uh, he went back to his hometown, and he gave his first sermon. Now, your first sermon is really intimidating. I remember the first time I preached for a class in seminary, the first time I preached in my home church. It's incredibly unnerving. You're very aware of who is in the audience, and you don't want to screw it up. So Jesus decides to uh, unroll one of the scrolls at his discretion, and he reads it aloud, and this is the scene that happens. So Jesus returned to Galilee, powerful in the Spirit, after his 40 days sorting it all out and figuring out what it is that God wanted him to do. News that he was back spread through the countryside. He taught in their meeting places to everyone's acclaim and pleasure. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been reared. As he always did on the Sabbath, he went to the meeting place. Uh, when he stood up to read, he was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. It's his favorite prophet. He quoted him more than any other. Unrolling the scroll... 
He found the place where it was written, meaning that he wanted to go to this particular place to read this. And he said, God's Spirit is upon me. He's chosen me to preach the message of good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim pardon to prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the burdened and battered free, and to announce this is God's year to act. What Jesus did not say in his opening uh, message was, I'm going to spend one to three years with you, and then I'm going to die so that you can be forgiven every time you look at the cross that I'm going to be crucified on. It's not what he said. It's also not what he did. He painted a picture of what shalom was about. Freedom, sight, well-being, people being fed. This is the grand thing that Jesus was after. And take a look at what he did with his life. So he taught new uh, life based on a new identity. Uh, you are a child of God. He spoke hope to the hopeless. He healed people of every disease. He showed how to seek peace with enemies, and he taught them how to do it nonviolently uh, so that uh, they wouldn't get their butts kicked, which would certainly happen if they just tried to pick up their pitchforks. Uh, he, he restored sight to the blind. He brought back those who strayed, uh, like I'm thinking Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Uh, he brought them back into the fold. Uh, he fed hungry people. He challenged the power abusers. He touched people who were untouchable. Uh, and this, these were all no-nos. These were all challenging cultural norms. But he kept on going. He kept judged people from dying. Uh, in other words, people who were, this one uh, is the woman caught in adultery. Remember that uh, horrible story? She was a goner if he hadn't stepped in and redeemed the whole thing. He brought dead people back to life. He modeled how to forgive and restore people. He came alongside people no matter what. Uh, and he modeled nonviolence. To use our own language, how might we categorize all these things here at Crosswalk? He stretched, he kneeled, he graced, he connected, and he incarnated. He stretched his own mind. He was a lifelong learner. He stretched the people that he taught by giving new, fresh interpretations of scriptures that they thought they knew, and he got in trouble for it, just like I do, <laughs> except for he was much better at it. Uh, he kneeled in service to anybody and everybody, regardless of who they were, just because they needed help. Now, he graced people, which means to a person he spoke forgiveness of sin to and said, you're okay with God. To the woman that was just caught in a horrible, horrible uh, chess match between uh, religious leaders and Jesus, he sees the brokenness in her, and he says, you have been forgiven long before she asks her need of it. He is speaking forgiveness to her. This is the kind of thing that Jesus did again and again. When he healed a person with blindness, when he healed a person with leprosy, it was seen as an act of the grace of God because everybody assumed that their illnesses respectively were caused somehow by sin. When Jesus eradicated those things, it clearly communicated to them, grace has been transacted here. And when Jesus would teach on things for larger groups of people, like for the whole Jewish people, on how do we pursue this shalom thing and do it in a way that's not going to get us killed, nonviolent protesting is what he taught, that gets into the area of justice. Grace is individual, justice is for groups. And Jesus was all about justice. Uh, he was one that connected with God. He, his first act after he got baptized and had this mind-blowing experience. What's he do? He goes into the wilderness so that he can sort it out with God, just be quiet and still. 
We really suck at that. You know that? We really suck at that. I mean, I think a friend of mine told me, he, he asked me, hey, on average, how, how long when people pull up to a stoplight, how long before they look at their phone? He says it's like three and a half seconds. We are addicted to this. When are we silent? I, I have friends who can't stand silence. <laughs> I took a bike ride yesterday to support CASA in Solana County. A friend of mine is really into that. And uh, I have a hunch that my friend does not like silence, who I took this ride with, uh, because he had jams going the whole time. Now, me, when I ride, I don't want any jams, except maybe Miley Cyrus on It's the Climb, because when I ever take a hill, that's what I keep telling myself. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. <laughs> You're going to get to the top of this stupid mountain eventually. Uh, but I prefer the silence because I want to hear the wind, and I have enough noise in my life. And for me, riding my bike is like sailing. I'm just out. When do you build silence into your life? When do you turn off the TV, the podcast, the Spotify? When are you still? And if you're unnerved by that stillness and quietness, then you really need to go with Dave today in the small conference room right after the service because he'll help you get more comfortable with it. So Jesus was all about connecting, and he incarnated. And what we mean by that around here has to do with recognizing that we are all, all of us are incarnate beings, all of us. The Spirit of God is within you. You are a child of God. And when we meet together, we recognize and affirm that together. When you are going through the worst that life can give you, we surround you as presence, as an active presence of the love of God. And when you celebrate the highest of the highs, be it college graduation or 13 years sobriety or Anne on her birthday next Saturday or everybody else who has birthdays at some point, when we surround and celebrate each other's achievements and everything, that is more of the Spirit of God at work. This is what it means when we say incarnate with each other. And it's a beautiful and wonderful thing. This is what Jesus was about with his life. He didn't spend a whole lot of time. He, he knew he was going to die, and he knew it wasn't going to be great. It took forever for the church to catch up and, and wonder, many actually truly codifying it centuries later, about what the cross would mean. But until, you know, for the first several decades, if not longer, of the early church, they were focused on this grander shalom thing that Jesus was teaching them. That's what they pursued. You didn't see a lot of Turner Burn preachers in that day and age because that wasn't Jesus. Now, I want to give you um, what I'm calling the final 10%. And that's actually um, a little quip I learned that's related to this whole sin and salvation stuff and the, the broader shalom and our healing and becoming um, that I think um, we are invited into with God. And it has so much to do with what Dave uh, is going to be talking about uh, after service and the after service that he's leading in that small conference room. Uh, this idea of the final 10% um, came from a, a religious leader um, of pretty great renown, and the way it would work is, is uh, if he'd had like a staff member, um, he'd, he'd like give 90%, which was all the easy stuff to talk about, whatever they were going to talk about. But if there was an issue, uh, more, more important issue, a deeper thing that was probably not going to be welcome news, he would always say to the person, 
Um, is it okay with you if I give you the final 10%? And that was an invitation, and people kind of knew to take a deep breath and to, uh, to be able to, to say, yes, I'm accepting the 10%. I'm not going to get that heavy with you, but it might be. So I asked, can I give you the 10%? All right, two of you said yes, so the rest of you have to listen in while I give it to the, to the two that, that won it. <laughs> Um, Dave used other language from Martha Beck about the state of our lives. And at least in my personal experience and what I've seen um, as a human being in relationship with lots of other human beings and as a pastor uh, for a long time, uh, now coming up to 28 years in July, um, and per maybe particularly in the West uh, where we really work hard on letting everybody see what we want them to see, uh, but not necessarily being our true selves and not really letting our laundry out, so to speak. And frankly, we don't just do that for other people. Um, we don't just do our Facebook persona um, for the Facebook audience or other, other people. We do it for ourselves, too. And uh, he talked about do, do not mention zones that Martha quipped, which is brilliant. And I think in our culture and our own safety mechanisms as human beings, there are parts of our lives that we just don't want to touch because they're too painful. And sometimes they're awful and ugly because of somebody that did something to us, abused their power perhaps as a parent or step-parent or a sibling. Uh, maybe, um, maybe it's not horribly severe in your estimation, and so you dismiss it. And so I think that's a real struggle for us. There is this thing called ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences. And I've been in groups where people will have four or five and more ACEs. I want to tell you, uh, in my growing up, I have no ACEs. None. None. And yet, I still have my stuff which tells me this is a real human experience, that we don't like to look at the hardest parts. We like to ignore the pain. We like to keep it behind closed doors. We like to not talk about it because the very mention of it starts to undo us. It's too much. And so we just keep those areas of our lives blocked off, untouched, unspoken and unhealed remaining that way sometimes for the rest of our lives sometimes sometimes uh, a modicum of healing happens just because of time itself you've heard the phrase time heals all wounds that's actually a lie it doesn't we get a little used to the pain, but it doesn't necessarily heal in and of itself. We can mellow. Uh, we can be more gracious with it as we grow older, hopefully, and we're not quite as uptight with ourselves and other people as we once were the more seasoned we have uh, of life. But for the most part, when we don't address things that need to be addressed, 
they just stay there just as they are, just as open as they ever were. And it's only and until we start to crack that door open that we can ever hope that shalom will happen for us, this deep healing. We think that peace is going to be uh, for us if we just keep the doors locked because then that conflict stays behind there, conflict with ourselves and other people. But deep peace, shalom, is not the absence of conflict. It is a deep harmony and well-being. And it's very, very nerve-wracking. And it takes incredible courage to look at ourselves and really ask the hardest questions that will lead us to that kind of shalom. It's hard, hard, hard work. Uh, but I can tell you, uh, just from my own experience, um, that it is the work and it is the path <laughs> to get us to that place of freedom that I believe we are capable of, that God is absolutely blowing wind into our sails for. It's the depth of healing that we long for for ourselves and everyone else. And it's an ongoing work. It is difficult to just open the door. That takes courage, but it takes increasing vulnerability to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, just like that. <laughs> what am I seeing here? <laughs> this cannot be what, I, what my life has become. This is not who I want to be. It is painful. Sometimes we have no words. Paul says in, uh, to one of his letters, the, the spirit sighs for us, sighs too deep for words because we don't have the words. And sometimes it's looking at these areas of our lives. In fact, it's only when we begin looking at these areas of our lives that we really begin to find freedom, one step at a time. Sometimes insights that are profound that carry us forward, but the work continues because we're human beings and we mess up and we don't always see things right. But this work of continually asking helps. Richard Rohr, uh, who I'm a big fan of, um, he wrote a book 20 years ago or so called Everything Belongs. And what he was simply saying is this. Your life right now, everything in your life is really there. It's really there. <laughs> and it all belongs there. Does, he in no way says that God caused all these things to be there. In fact, he does not believe that. I don't believe that. But everything that's happened in your life is there. And you might as well deal with it. You might as well milk it for what's possible. You might as well let God in to help heal those things because then what, what Rohr says through this brilliant book is that when we allow everything to belong, we allow then everything, even our darkest parts of us, we allow those things to inform us. And instead of being more and more dis-ease, they become the actual conduit of our transformation. Now, I grew up uh, in a family of four, and uh, I was the youngest, and uh, I think my parents were really tired by the time I came around. I was not expected. I was a surprise. <laughs> and I think they were, uh, they were just like, uh, you know, their first child, of course, you know, they're helicopter parents, you know. And by number two, a little less. By the time my brother was around, less. And by, with, by the time I came around, it was like, 
I thought, do we have a fourth kid or not? We're not quite sure. I mean, we don't know where he is or what he's doing. Well, anyway, uh, between my family system and how my brain is wired as an Enneagram 3, understanding who I am, apart from performing, is very difficult and has been very difficult. One of the things that my sabbatical did for me, which you gave me uh, last summer, is it allowed me to not perform for three months. And I did not waste that time. But I did a lot of work wondering who am I when I'm not performing. And that may seem insignificant to you, but that takes me to very painful places. That takes me to deep insecurities. That takes me to wondering, uh, am I successful if I'm not performing in some way? It makes me wonder about my, my value as a human being, my worthiness, and my journey throughout all this stuff of my own experience of opening the doors and allowing that broken stuff to be looked at again, to say to myself, okay, everything really belongs, so we might as well do something with it. It's been incredibly painful to see the kinds of things that have happened in me. Questions of my worth. Am I lovable? Uh, am I worthy? All sorts of things that I think are common to the human experience. And I have a hunch that some of those things, being human experience, that you probably wrestle with too. And I'm imploring you. If you really want the sin, and if you want... God to do God's saving work. Cooperate with the Spirit of God, even if it's just a crack, to start to allow the Spirit to do healing work in your life. And I want to say on a macro level, this is a problem that human beings face collectively. We say to ourselves, if we don't talk about a problem that's been there, then maybe it's going to go away magically. And so uh, there are states in our union that want to say we are not going to talk <laughs> about things related to LGBTQ neighbors and friends. And if we don't talk about such things, then maybe it won't exist somehow. Can we hear ourselves? If we don't talk about the experience of color and skin tones and gender in our country, then, then it'll just sort of go away. And we tell ourselves this because it, it has the semblance of peace. If we just stop talking about it, then we won't hear the noise about it, and so we must have solved it. But that is not shalom. That is a false peace. When we, as the Jesus followers, say, no, we're, we're about shalom, which is grace and justice, which means we've got to talk about stuff because if we don't talk about it and look at it, Everything belongs, and it's just going to continue being a cancer in our body of human, of human reality in our country and our world until we start really talking about it and understanding it. It's never going to go away, and it will destroy us even more than it already has. What do we do with this when our human nature is to want to just close our ears and our eyes? Who are we going to be as Jesus followers if we, if we dare say that God is about shalom for all, that God is about grace and justice? Who are we really if we do nothing except for look after our individual well-being?
we are called and wooed and invited. We get to be a part of not just our personal healing, but the healing of every person on the planet and the planet, if we'll have it. This is a very jesus followy thing to do. This is very shalomi work. <laughs> and you are invited to do it. So my question then for you is how are you being wooed into deeper well-being for yourself and community and world, even though to say I'm being wooed toward this means vulnerability, which requires courage, but it is our hope for well-being individually, collectively, globally. That's the 10%. Let's pray together. So uh, just be still for a minute and quiet. What is the still, small voice saying to you? Are you uncomfortable? If so, with what? Why? How might you allow God in? Oh, God, if we had the ears to hear your spirit sighing on our behalf to help us, the volume would be overwhelming. Friends, you are not alone in the journey. Everyone in this room and everyone outside this room struggles longs for healing but are shaking in their boots. Some in denial. <laughs> Some fully aware and terrified. But we are all in this together. And the healing spirit of God is with us. So, breath of God. Breathe into our lungs, into our lives. That we would have the courage and the strength to see clearly. the strength of your love to carry us forward. The hope of everlasting breath and breath and breath forevermore. Amen. 
Thank you for being here today. May the Spirit of God move in your lives, and may you see it and know it and be free. Thanks for coming. See you next week.